iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. If I drive for you, you give me a time and a place, I give you a five-minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours, no matter what. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. So you just moved to LA? No, I've been here for a while. What do you do? I drive for movies. Isn't that dangerous? It's only part-time. You put this kid behind the wheel. There's nothing he can't do. Kid, I want you to meet Mr. Bernie Rose. My hands are a little dirty. So am I. My husband is coming home. Where is he? He's in prison. There's some guys that want me to do a job for him, and I'm not going to do it. What is that you got there? One of those men gave you that? What's the job? When you get your money, his debt's paid. You never go near his family again. there'd be a second car? He said there'd be another car to hold us up. Whose money do I have? I'm gonna tell you something. Anybody finds out we're both dead. That's why this driver's gotta go, Bernie. He's gotta go. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone, and tonight's guest, Nicholas Winding Refn. So you all looked at that trailer, and you can see that it's all about driving. And this guy, you don't drive at all, right? You don't even have a driver's license. I failed eight times. Eight and the only reason why I passed a written exam was I could memorize it, but I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> Great. So why should we trust you to know about driving? Who's driving you around all the time? Well, Ryan, was, I don't live in Los Angeles. I'm mm-hmm. from Copenhagen. I live in Copenhagen. So Ryan would basically be my chauffeur in Los Angeles and drive me all around L.A. and show me L.A. at night. Nice chauffeuring. Nice doing that. Well, let's start in the obvious way, which is not the way your movie is in any way, but with how it came about. How do you suddenly leave Copenhagen and go to Hollywood and make a movie about driving? It all started with Harrison Ford. Um, Everything does, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> I was in Los Angeles working on a movie with Harrison Ford called The Dying of the Light, which is um, it's a script by Paul Schrader, and it's about a CIA agent who goes on an existentialistic journey and then dies at the end. 
and I really wanted to kill Harrison Ford. And I that thought was the whole motivation the for whole doing The whole motivation it. was that if I can kill Harrison Ford in a movie, I would have achieved something. And um, so I was in L.A., and I, you know, I'd gotten all the money to make the movie. I was working on the script with Harrison, and then Harrison decided he didn't want to die. And I was like, damn, that goes the whole point of the movie. So I was really, you know, angry with myself of being in Hollywood, bought into the whole glamour of coming to Hollywood and, of course, ending up in development hell. And then out of the blue, I got a phone call from Ryan Gosling asking if I would meet with him and about doing a movie together. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, L.A. is all about meetings. Um, the only problem was that I had a very high fever because I'd come into Los Angeles ill on the plane. And... Uh, but Harrison Ford had gotten me these anti-flu drugs you have in America, which are very strong, and it got the flu down, but it made me high as a kite. Wait a minute, you walk away from Harrison's movie, and he still gets you anti-flu drugs? And high as a kite. The I was speaking equally as slow no, as Harrison Ford. And um, so I went to the dinner with Ryan, which was kind of weird, because... I, uh, I, uh, you know, he had sent a script over the morning that I read, but I couldn't remember it because I was so high. And when I got to the restaurant, I literally was the chair. So it's hard to have a conversation with somebody who thinks he's a chair. Um, so we didn't really talk about anything and except a little bit of music, a little bit about my movies, but I was not able to basically communicate. And I, wouldn't, I couldn't look at him, and he would be sitting where you are, and I would be sitting like this, and I couldn't move, so he'd be talking to me in profile. And, and it was just disas like disastrous, like a blind date, like this was no action tonight. And um, I asked him halfway through dinner, would you please take me home? And he goes, well, you can't drive? And I go, no, I don't have a driver's license. <laughs> so we get into his car, and we're driving to my hotel in Santa Monica, and on the way... You know, that awkward silence in a blind date, you know, that kind of eeriness. Uh, Ryan tries to break that by uh, turning on the radio, and it's soft rock. So here we are driving to Santa Monica, and our Speedwagons, I Can't Fight This Feeling Anymore, starts to play. <laughs> and, and I, you know, when you're really stoned, you do stupid stuff, like turn the music really loud, <laughs> like really obnoxiously loud. And the song blasts through the stereo, and I start singing to the song, which I never do. And it's really embarrassing when you do that. So I'm in the car, I'm with Ryan, I'm singing, I can't fight this feeling anymore. And then I start to cry. <laughs> and like tears are rolling down my cheeks. And <laughs> How is Ryan reacting to all this? He's petrified. He's not even yeah. looking at me. He's like looking straight ahead yeah. this time, thinking, oh my God, what's he going to do, kill me next and, you know, I was missing my wife, and I, 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 my, my second daughter had just been born. What was I doing in Los Angeles? Uh, Harrison Ford won't die. It's just a disaster. But it gives me some kind of thought, like some kind of movie evokes in my head. And I turn to Ryan for the first time, and I scream at his face, like really loud, because the music is so loud. And I say, I got it. We're going to make a movie about a man who drives around in a car at night listening to pop music, because that's emotional relief. And Ryan looks at me, and he goes, cool, uh, I'm in. And then 
That's how the movie got started. <laughs> well, what's in your head musically? There's no REO Speedwagon in that, but there's this continuous kind of beat and, and electro-pop synth going on. Well, I, whenever I make a movie, I try to imagine it as a piece of music because uh, I don't do drugs anymore, so, except for that time with Harrison. And so... Um, it, music gives me ideas because essentially I'm a fetish filmmaker. I make films based on what I would like to see. And I always wanted an electronic score for a movie like this because I thought it would be interesting to counterbalance the masculinity of the American car world and the stunt world with the feminine pop of early 80s in Europe and that it would kind of make a counterbalance. And when you combine those two things, because I stripped away all dialogue, some kind of energy and emotions would be, you know, blown out of it. Um, and then I would listen to a lot of craft work in the beginning when I was writing it and uh, with Haas, and then developing and shooting it, I would continue to, to use craft work and then Brian Eno and stuff like that. And then when it got into the actual final editing, I would find three pop songs that I would then use as a reference that I then got the license to put into the movie, and then I had Cliff Martinez emulate that sound for the soundtrack. So when you're putting that together, what else is in your head? Are you, is your head filled with movies of the 1980s that were set in L.A.? Michael Mann movies like uh, Thief? Well, I, I actually didn't see Thief until after we wrapped shooting, but I loved it. It's a great movie. Unfortunately, I didn't see it before. I should have seen it before, probably. Um, I, uh, there was not so much of a film reference. There was a more of a literature reference to of Grimm's fairy tales, and the idea of doing Hollywood, a fairy tale in Los Angeles, was very interesting to me because being an outsider, you only really see Hollywood as a city of illusions, and that it's pure fantasy and doing a movie like a Grimm's fairy tale, which starts with very champagne, you know, emotional purity, but ends with extreme violence, um, really suits my, my taste. So that's the fairy tale to you. I think most people that do live in Los Angeles also see it as an illusion. <laughs> they might work there, but it's a whole different thing that's happening. Now, you described how you and Ryan meet and have this meeting that in a lot of cases could have ended with uh, him dropping you off and saying Goodbye. to his manager, <laughs> the hell was that about? What is that guy about? But what was it you saw in him that you wanted to put into drive? Well, I think that, I mean, clearly he is the best actor around. So that itself was very, you know, I could tell that right away. Uh, I hadn't seen a lot of his movies, but I knew from the, what I've seen that he was the best. And when I saw him for real, I've never met a more Mac, you know, he was like a magnetic as an actor. He, he was so unique in his power that um, it would work. And because we had to share almost experience within the car one way or another, it just felt natural that the way it evolved for us, and we almost became telekinetic at the end, like two bodies but one mind. Yet you give him, in this movie, very little to say. So this is the sort of mythical loner character that we don't know anything. I mean, nobody here knows, but he's also working as a stuntman, a driver in Hollywood, as well as doing jobs on the side as a getaway driver. Mm -hmm. 
And I love that idea that he gets, you know, you have five minutes. Mm. <laughs> you know, this is it, and you have to do this. Where is all that coming from that you wanted to combine not only Los Angeles as a dreamscape, but with the idea of this criminal thing? Well, I mean, the book that it's based on by James Salas is a really good book, and I highly recommend it. And in the book, the driver character is, is different because, A, there's a whole backstory to him that it kind of explains his behavior and so forth. But I wanted the movie to be about a man who has a mythological past, so he becomes more of a mythological hero out of the cinema mythology. You know, he's almost like conjure up imagination. He is what the other characters need him to be. And that's why he becomes silent is because he doesn't have anything to say unless you ask him. He will only answer your question if he wants to answer it. But that makes him automatically more mysterious and he also romantic at the same time it makes him also more scarier and violent when he finally becomes violent. So it's it basically how all mythological heroes are usually created in the same kind of DNA in every country and every civilization. And violence is always at the other end of it. It's inevitable that things will end <clears throat> with violence because that is what heroes do at the end. Yeah. They always have to protect the innocence in the final consequence. And that always involves violence because that's the emotional relief. Is that you, Nicholas? Were you, did you grow up wanting to punch people out? Uh, maybe. I certainly didn't. I couldn't do it. So <laughs> I, I make movies about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of me in all the films I make because when you're a fetish, you automatically project who you want to be or what would you like to do. Like, there is sexual fetish, there is other kind of fetish that, that represent essentially who you are underneath. And I've made a couple of other movies about transformation because this movie is about a man who transforms himself into a superhero through the story. And I've always been very obsessed about transformation. There was a French critic that called this the trilogy of transformation for me. So the French are so smart. I didn't know that. It was a trilogy like the Pusher trilogy <laughs> as well, which you did. But the one I want to bring up is Bronson because Bronson is based on this guy that's still in prison in Britain who just has this rage that's in him. And you, I read a quote from you, which you could now say, I never said that. What are you talking about? But you said, that's the most autobiographical of your films. How is that? Well, um, I mean, I didn't have an interest in Bronson because he's never achieved anything of value, or Michael Peterson, which was his real name. But I was interested in a transformation of he transforms himself from Michael Peterson into Charlie Bronson, that how one transforms himself into their alter ego, but essentially gets trapped in that. And, and that is what fascinated me. And, of course, I used my whole... My, a lot of my own life into that because you, we all deal with our demons one way or another and I'm able to do it through my films. Um, and it led to my film I did afterwards called Valhalla Rising, which is about a man who starts in a cage and escapes and goes through man's evolution and ends up being man and then Driver starts with a man who becomes a superhero. So there's that kind of fascination for me. And it's great drama. It is. Well, I'm, I'm going to about to ask you about Albert Brooks in this movie, which I think is a performance like nobody has ever seen him give. Um, I saw him this morning and asked him if he really was a criminal at some point in his life. Because you told him that he, when you met him, that he was a volcano, right? That he was somebody's capable of killing someone. Um, 
what is this that you saw in Albert Brooks that well, he should play this? I always wanted Albert Brooks, but I'd never met him, and, and I didn't really know anything about him, but I had a concept that he would be interesting, and plus, never having played a bad guy or killed anybody was automatically interesting to me. But he was able to come and meet me at my house in Los Angeles, and... Um, uh, you know, as I said, he was a volcano of emotions. He was all over the place emotionally, which was really interesting because you could see the, the range as an actor, first of all, but also it taught me a lot about how to use him very quickly because I gave him the part right away, realizing that this guy, you know, essentially would kill somebody, so we should do it in a movie before he does it for real. <laughs> He must have been very comforted by the doing it for real. Yeah. But he talks about the idea that it is much more interesting to cast someone like him than it would be to cast an actor where you immediately would expect to kill somebody. Absolutely. It's always interesting for an audience to be surprised. They may have a you know, presumptions of what it's going to be like, but surprising them is what we all want to be. We all want to go to the movies and see something we didn't expect. At the same time, we don't want to be alienated either. So it's always a fine balance. But I knew that having him being who he is, playing it as Albert really is, and then when he becomes violent, he becomes extremely violent, was always very interesting to me. It's a bit like playing the piano. <laughs> How is that? Does the, does the piano also become violent? No, but you can be violent with the piano. Oh, I see. You can just really slam it and get all of that out with it. But... He, in taking on, this is the guy that his most successful movie is Finding Nemo, where he does the voice of a very friendly daddy fish, you know, in this. And when we see him, he's in this angst-ridden kind of roles where he just doesn't really get the girl. He's in broadcast news and he's sweating and, and anxious. And here he's as cool as he could possibly be. Was this hard? Was this a difficult Thing between the two of you to get this? No, it was actually very easy. And also because I made him a movie producer in the film that used to be a gangster. So uh, many people to call on them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in Salas's book, uh, Bernie Rose's character is more than conventional mobster, which was really good in the book, but the movie needed to be something else. And I came up with this idea that he used to be a gangster, then when became a movie producer, and now is an entrepreneur. That's how he sees himself. And because of his association with the driver, he has to go back to being a gangster again. Yeah, he seems to really be, as a character, kind of upset that he has to resort to violence <laughs> because he's looking forward to seeing this. He wanted to see his name on a car, too. But I don't want to give too much away of what that is, except when I asked him this morning to give me a secret about you, he said, you ask Nicholas for me about how at, on, on one day he came on the set to direct wearing a dress. Okay, well... Okay, you know. I, I wasn't wearing a dress, but what I do is that I wear a blanket around my stomach whenever I work every day. Really? Because it keeps me warm and it keeps me calm. Because <laughs> making film is very stressful. And I only take it off if I'm either very warm or very, very angry. And uh, nobody can know the difference. So uh, <laughs> it's part of my way of making film. And if I don't have the blanket, I get completely paranoid. So the blanket is always with me. Which he sees as the dress. Yes, well, in a way, it is. And it's a fetish. So it's pretty great. It's Close perfect. my needs. 
Yes, well, I don't know. There's no clips of that. Will that be on the DVD? It's online already. Really? <laughs> there are no secrets anymore, are there? So, so sad. Thanks for Steve Jobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's another aspect, uh, another theme and plot that's running through this movie that involves Carrie Mulligan. Can you set that up a little? Well, uh, I was originally looking for a Latino actress to play the role of Irene because in the book, Irene is Latino. And you thought immediately you saw an education <laughs> and it's Carrie Mulligan. She's there. And I was, I was meeting like the best talent in Hollywood of Latino backgrounds and incredible actresses. And for some reason, I just couldn't get it to work in my mind. And I don't know why. And I probably really know why because it was all in front of me it was like handed to me mm -hmm. and I got a call from Carrie's agent asking if I would meet with her because she had seen my film so would like to you know again meet again Hollywood's all about meeting so I said sure but I didn't have anything for her in the movie but if she wants to come by my house she was more than welcome and um, so she came at nine o'clock in the morning and the minute she walked through the door I knew it was going to be her so I said, you're it. And what that changed doing? everything. Well, I think that it was her innocence that reminded me of my own wife. And knowing that I had to go through very violent emotions in making the film, I needed to know that I could fall in love with her. And she reminded me very much of my own wife. And um, that made it work for me. And then, of course, two days later, Carrie moved into my house with my wife. So we became very close. You want to explain that just a smidgen? Well, she didn't have a place to live. <laughs> I see. She had no place to live. Yeah, Academy no Award nominee for, the, uh, for an education, but no place to live. Which I had never seen. I'd never seen any of her movies when I met her. But my wife had said she was very good, and my mother had said she was very good. And they're very... If they like it, then I know I will like it. Well, see, for any actors out there, this is, this is the greatest story that they could ever possibly hear. Who cares what you did before? You just... The meeting worked, and it's even better if uh, somebody's on Harrison Ford's antivirus medication. <laughs> okay. Do people come to you and say, Nick, you know, you did the Pusher trilogy, Bronson, Valhalla Rising, and now you've done your Hollywood movie. Could you ease up on this? Uh, you know, does it, do we always have to have violence? Do they say that to you? My wife asks me each time when I'm going to make the romantic comedy. <laughs> And I say to her, I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> I think art is an act of violence. Mm -hmm. So I think naturally I will always... I mean, art is a combination of sex and violence, you know, of course. And I'm still in the violent area. But I would love to make something about sex. My only problem is that I hate sex scenes. So I'm trying to figure out how to solve this problem. Well, there's all that sexual tension in this movie because it's not acted on for that while. There's just them looking at each other. There's a lot of that looks. And that is, I think, a very difficult thing to achieve, whether it's being done on that set or in, done in the editing room so that it is exactly the rhythm you want it to be. But how do you behave to your actors when you're pleased with what they've done? Well, I, um, <laughs> I would cry a lot. <laughs> So they know that's a good thing. Well, yeah, because we. then I knew they fell in love. And when you work with actors that are great, like I was opportunity to have, and you take away their dialogue with Carrie and Ryan, they have to use their gestures and their physical behavior to, to tell everything. And it becomes not... You know, most actors use their voices to communicate, and are used to that. 
But when you take that away, you basically handicap them and they're forced to exercise a muscle which for a long time maybe hasn't really been greased because everybody always relies on the word. And uh, it was interesting to go through that because I would shoot very little coverage, like almost zero coverage, but I would use it to the take and again and again and again and again and again to almost strip down any kind of barrier to its essential. And I would just always go over and hug either Carrie or Ryan before doing a scene until they gave in to the hug, <laughs> which could take a long time. And then we would do it again and again and again. And then when I cried, I said, now I'm in love. We can move on. It's, it's almost sexual harassment as a directing style. I, I, you know, it's unique. I really think that's good. You know, I don't know. Nobody's complained so far. So it's okay. As yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is the other side of that now? What, when you're not happy, <laughs> do you laugh uproariously? What happens when you're looking at what they're doing and it's not working for you? we continue until it does. And maybe that means changing something, mm -hmm. uh, rewriting stuff. Uh, I mean, I don't storyboard. I don't do anything beforehand. I, I show up, and then I figure out what I want to do when I'm there. You know, I let the actors block it out, what makes them feel comfortable. And when it works for everybody, then I photograph it the way they would like to see it. But it's always changing. And if something is not working in a scene, you, I stop and then we usually end up changing the whole scene because you can't just change something without having a domino effect. So you have to trust yourself and your instincts because filmmaking is about being unsafe. It's being on dangerous ground because that makes you creativity. I mean, the chief enemy of any kind of art form is safe. So true. All right, well, now it's time for the audience if you have any questions. This is your moment. Seize that microphone. Take over the stage. Do it all. We have a question in the front row for uh, you. Yes. Well, in light of all that, um, are there certain films in your history uh, that you think of as the uh, epitome of the dangerous film and that have sort of helped define the idea of uh, films that have that sense of danger to them? Uh, the film that, made, that showed me the film was an art form was The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I saw that when I was 14 at New York Cinema Village, and that's when I realized that I want to do what that film has done to me. We have time for two more questions. I have a question, third row, left side. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, the first part, not really a question, but you mentioned about um, wanting to do a movie of sexual nature, but you didn't like sex scenes. A good example of that is Mike Nichols' film Closer. That whole movie's all about sex, and there's not one sex scene in it. Um, the question I think I would have is um, about the rehearsal process maybe that you had with the actors. Well, I don't rehearse, but I shoot in chronologically order, which gives the actors kind of a normal evolution of how they see their characters, but also makes them unpredictable because I can change things along the way mm -hmm. if I want to. And, uh, but I would always meet with the actors beforehand, and then I would talk about why, why they're not doing what they're supposed to, meaning that, let's say, for example, you walk through a door... I asked him, well, what happens if you didn't walk through the door? So whatever is left is the right thing to do. It's kind of a, the opposite analysis of trying to figure out what's right, rather think about what isn't right. Last question in the back row. Oh, hi. Um, my question is, um, 
since you have Ryan attached to it, was it easy to get financing? And you think it would have been any otherwise if Ryan was not part of the process? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's all about, you know, um, the combination. But certainly having a, a star helps. And a star like Ryan Gosling automatically puts it on its map. But all the studios passed on it. Nobody would finance it. So I had to go into the world of independent financing, which, again, I was used to because that's where I come from. And we had to start pre-selling the movie at Cannes just to get things rolling. And then we were able to get a California tax incentive and so forth. And then closed the budget, which meant I only had seven weeks to shoot the movie, which is tough for a movie with a lot of action. But of course, yes, having a movie star as your alter ego certainly helps it with the financing, absolutely. Now, you were telling me before that you're working with Ryan again two more times. Yeah, well, it went so well the first time, we felt, why not continue? And, uh, <laughs> so he's going to pick you up in a car and drive you somewhere. Yeah, this time on a plane. No, uh, we are we're doing a movie in Bangkok uh, at Christmas called Only God Forgives. And then afterwards, we're doing the remake of a sci-fi movie called Logan's Run. The Ryan Gosling trilogy. This is that. You're just thinking in trilogies to do that. Well, for all of us, we hope you just keep driving, whether it's with Ryan or with anybody, because this is one hell of a really terrific movie. Thank so, you. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. Thank you again so much to Nicholas Winding Refn, the film Drive.